29 previous times, Ed and I have sat down to discuss basically whatever the hell we felt like talking about in relation to programming, and you are now listening to episode number 30 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, I am Chris Harchis, Grumpy Programmer on Twitter, Grumpy without the U. On the other channel is Ed Finkler, uh, Funkatron of IRC, Fame and Fortune. Say hi, Ed. Ed. Oh, I muted myself when I wanted to talk. <laughs> Whoops. I was like, I started talking, and I was like, what happened? <laughs> We're showing our usual level of professional preparedness here. Yeah. But anyway, classic. to make a long story short, it's episode 30 of the Development Hell podcast. And uh, this week, we only have our one usual sponsor. Thanks so much to Paul Reinheimer and his uh, his um, partner, Will, at the Wonder Network for providing us with the bandwidth to do the live stream. So if you're... So if you're listening, well, I guess you're listening to us right now on IRC. And if you can't make it live, well, you should try to make it sometime because you can hang on IRC and ask us questions and troll us and stuff while we're trying to do the show. Yeah, that's a good idea. Sorry, right. something just fell down. I don't know what it was. All right. Yeah. So uh, so this this episode came together on a little bit of short notice. So no guests. It's just me and Ed moaning. Uh, about things, and uh, the, we have a peanut gallery on IRC that will be hanging on our every word. So, but we actually do pick some topics. So, let's. Uh, why don't we get started? So, the first thing we want to talk about is um, I know that uh, as part of your work at the greatest startup ever, um, you do a lot of front end stuff, and you've actually started uh, getting into testing. So, I know I was quite proud. I shed a little tear when you uh, were uh, sending me messages. Um, via Gtalk about some of the stuff that you're doing. So why don't you talk a bit about what you've been uh, playing around with? Yeah. So it, the the, uh, the bad thing is that I, I should have been writing tests before, but um, the good thing is that I'm writing tests now. I guess um, we've been writing uh, tests for a project that uh, it's a it's a big backbone website, a backbone JS based website. And just writing uh, tests to work with that. And it's interesting to look at that. There's lots and lots of good JS testing stuff. Um, we ended up, or not we, I guess I ended up, uh, because no one else was going to do it, um, I started uh, writing stuff in uh, a testing framework called Mocha. And I guess I just started using it because I kind of liked it better. Actually, I, I think one of the guys... Um, uh, He's destroyed today on Twitter, uh, Johnny, what's his last name, Holman? I don't remember. His, I can't remember now. Anyway, he probably somebody from work is listening and going to be mad at me. And um, anyway, he uh, had been using Mocha and recommended it, so I checked it out. And uh, I use Mocha, which is, uh, I guess it's sort of, it runs in the browser, but I think it's sort of, out of the box, more designed for Node. Like there's more reporters and stuff for. Yeah, Node, I've I've played with Mocha before in my um, Node experiments. So um, right. so yeah, it definitely works from the command line as well. Yeah, and so I use Mocha, and then there's, I, I and I'm not sure exactly why I took this approach or not, but I think because, probably because Johnny was using it, he uses a thing called Chai, which is a, it's like sort of a I guess an add-on to Mocha that lets you do BDD style testing stuff. So behavior driven development and i guess the really the the only difference is that it allows you to write in sort of a different syntax so you end up describing your tests as 
this thing should do this. And, you know, it sort of has this kind of verbose style, which some people might like, and I think some people will hate. Uh, but it sort of works okay. Um, I'm not, uh, I think there's a, the idea with behavior-driven development is to write the tests first, and uh, then you write your code to match, to meet those tests. Um, I uh, am not any kind of expert in those kinds of things, but I found that uh, it works okay. Uh, but I think it's just, for me, in, in my case, it's really more of a, it's just a, like, like what are the names of the functions and how, how sort of the syntax work and stuff like that. Um, so it's been interesting, and it's been interesting learning to structure it using, with our application, which is a big RequireJS. It's all based using, uh, based on RequireJS, so it uses that for loading in, um, dependencies and keeping things nice and separate and keeping things clean. Yeah, and, I had, yeah. um, it was interesting when you kind of sent me a little, um, gist so I could see what it looked like. And I had never done anything with required JS. So it was kind of interesting. And I saw that you had things set up because you kind of did, you're doing some tests and then you showed a thing of how it looked before and how it looked after. And I just, I, I found it, uh, I found it kind of interesting how you were, Basically, it looked to me like to, to someone who doesn't know a lot of JavaScript, it looks like you, it was kind of neat because you kind of had, I have a loader, here's all these library JavaScript files that I want to load, and then I'm assigning them, because I know that one of the problems you have is potential um, collisions, name potential namespace collisions. So you can do stuff like, say, I want all the jQuery libraries to be, jQuery functionality to be accessible via dollar sign, and, and you're almost, it's almost like you're creating pseudo namespaces for the, for the various uh, libraries that you're loading, I found that I found that really interesting. Yeah, I guess the idea with RequireJS, and I'm I'm if you actually just go to the website for it, it probably explains it a lot better. But the idea is to keep your code um, very modular and separated, and avoid um, like creating more globals um, as much as possible. So. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you write, you basically, I guess, you wrap all of your code inside a function, so stuff doesn't leak out of it, and uh, <laughs> um, it doesn't, uh, yeah, and um, then you pass in uh, dependencies into the as arguments to the function that wraps around it. And if you're defining, say, a library or module of some kind, what you do is you have that function. What it returns is an object that you can instantiate or things like that, right? So you create these libraries or these modules using that, and then um, using and using that with the define function that's in RequireJS. And then there's also a require function that just loads things in. Um, the one thing that's kind of tough with RequireJS is um, it. Expect, expects your code to be structured in that way, in that way that it's all going to be returned. It's not going to, it's all going to be encapsulated within this sort of wrapper function that keeps everything, all your like, uh, your variables from bleeding out into the global namespace. And so, um, lots of libraries aren't written like that. I'd say most of them, you know, out of the box aren't written in that way. So, uh, it has some functionality, and I think this might be new in RequireJS 2, which we're not actually using. A thing called a shim, which I think tries to wrap it automatically. Um, and then if not, what you actually have to do is, uh, in, what we've done is just manually modify libraries where it's the same kind of thing. You just wrap some code around it to, uh, have it, have it spit out a, a uh, 
have it return itself as a self-contained module as opposed to, uh, you know, just existing a global namespace. So like with jQuery, you'd, you'd end up wrapping the whole jQuery like file inside this function call that returns the jQuery thing as opposed to like being set up on the global object inside the browser. So, um, as W Golden here talks about, yeah, I, I, I think RequireJS uses this AMD or common JS module system. Um, that's, a uh, so it's based on that, which is similar, but a little different than like the, the system that node uses, I think, but I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, the, the node thing reminds me very much of like Python modules. Yeah. Um, and, and, support them. and I have to say, that's one of the things I really like about Python is like how it's got this module system baked in and it's really easy to use and straightforward. Um, it is, I find it so much nicer than say, uh, PHP namespaces. Oh, stop <laughs> Just stop it. And every time you talk about how awesome Python is, I die a little bit more inside. Well, that's your fault. Anyway, um, it is, it is my fault. <laughs> uh, I, but yeah. Um, anyway, the point is that it, that can make things a little bit more difficult when you use require JS, you're enforcing this, um, you know, module structure on your code and a lot of times that can sort of, because it's, it, it very much forces everything to fit into this mold. A lot of times some stuff doesn't play as well with that. So you kind of have to figure out how to make that work. Um, but usually you can. So we spent some time, uh, or I spent some time messing around with different things. Some of it worked and some of it didn't. Um, but, uh, I ended up coming up with a, with a decent kind of setup, uh, where, we use uh, Mocha and, and Chai, and uh, to with uh, you know we're playing along with Required JS, and I think I found like a guy who had set up sort of a basic bootstrap that kind of demonstrated how to do it, and I basically followed that. Um, and then there's another thing called Sign-On, which is a really I guess that's how you say it. Yeah, sign-on. I've used Sign-On before. Yeah, and that's really cool because. Um, Sign-in does a couple things that's that are that's really useful. Uh, at least the things I've used it for. The first thing that's cool are these things called spies, um, which are basically it's like it sort of wraps, um, I guess, a little bit of a proxy layer around a function call, or I'm sorry, around a function, um, so that when you call the function, or or excuse me, when that function gets called, you can then run tests on it to on the spy and say, "Hey, was this function called? And how? Like, what were the arguments that were passed to it? And, or how many times did it get called and stuff like that?" So you can say, "Oh, well, if I did this thing uh, here, I it should have been the case that this function was called three times." So you can write a test like that. that just says, "Okay, I assert that this thing that this you know spy." you know, caught it getting called three times and that it was, it was past these arguments and stuff like that. And that's pretty useful, particularly when you have these kinds of event driven or, um, you know, maybe even callback driven stuff where you might write, you might say, just, uh, trigger off an action and then you expect it. It's going to, you know, it's going to fire off a bunch of activity in other places inside your application. So what you do is you set up spies to watch, you know, okay, it's supposed, it should hit this fu- this method and this method and this method, right? And so you can set up spies on each one of those to check that stuff out. Oddly enough, in my book, I have a little teeny tiny section on test spies. Right, okay. Um, which you can't really do. 
you can you can only do them on mocks, which kind of is useless, but uh, uh, in my opinion. But yeah, that's the thing. I, that, that's the thing that I thought that was really that that would be extremely helpful for doing um, testing in PHP if you could do that kind of spy. I don't know. I've thought about how you would try to go about implementing that. I have no idea. Maybe maybe reflection, and I don't know. There may be some there may be some way to like create a version of this thing that you're going to use and then just watch to see if create some sort of uh, extract a call tree to see this method was called this many times and you can compare it some I wonder if somebody's given that some kind of thought yeah it'd be interesting and it'd be interesting to see how you could do that I mean JavaScript kind of lends itself to it being so being a functional language where you know functions are first class class object in it and uh, and stuff like that and that, that does make that easier um, and then I think the other thing that Sinon does that's pretty cool, at least that I've used so far, um, is this idea of setting up a fake like HTTP server inside your application, so that you can set up a uh, you can set up a like a yeah it, it's basically something that I think wraps around the XHR object inside the browser. And then, um, when certain requests get fired off with the XHR, it, um, sends back these, uh, mocked up responses. And you can set up things to say, okay, based on this path, respond to this. And based on this, respond this way. And send back this, this status and this head, these headers and this body and stuff like that. And so that's really useful, not surprisingly, if you are trying to test out um, things like models or other, anything else that is going to make a um, a server call. Uh, so that's really useful and lets you be able to do that without necessarily having to interact with a real HTTP server. Um, and that that removes that sort of thing from there, so you can you, you can write tests on that kind of level. And I think I, th- I think that's pretty useful, and I've uh, I've had some good success with that. Um, so sign on is, 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 has, has proven to be pretty useful for this application, which has tons and tons of, um, you know, uh, pulling data over XHR. Um, and it has lots of, uh, things where if you trigger, you know, you, you call one method, it's going to, it's going to trigger a bunch of things happening in other places. And maybe a series of events are going to happen. Uh, so, it, it's really helpful for that. Um, and I'm just getting started with it, but, uh, it's, it's certainly proven useful pretty, you know, um, sign on you can use with a bunch of different stuff. It's not just for like the mocha and chai stuff that I've been messing with. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. We use and, it at, we use it at Cinecore and, yeah. uh, uh, integrates really, uh, pretty much flawlessly with QUnit. Yeah. So that would not surprise me. Uh, I really like QUnit. Um, so it's certainly a, a real valid solution too. I like QUnit because it's really easy to get into. It was probably the first thing I ever wrote tests in, and it was really useful. Um, somebody on IRC asked about headless stuff. Um, yeah, that was a good question because one of the things we have a Jenkins server for continuous integration set up, and it runs some Python. Right now it's running stuff for our Python stuff. Uh, and it runs tests every time somebody pushes, uh, pushes code. And, um, our application is such that I can't take a, it's really hard, especially because I wrote it without thinking about how to do this. Uh, it, it really requires a browser, um, to execute and expects that, that, um, 
it, it expects that uh, that browser uh, environment. And so it was, you know, the stuff that's like built into Mocha for different kinds of reporters and things like that that would be easy to integrate with something like Jenkins, I guess, would were uh, not really there because the, the, the most of that code can't execute inside of. Uh, uh, you know, in, inside a node. Um, there's probably little bits and pieces I could pull out, but the majority of the application is not going to be able to execute it. It's a, it's a browser application. But we found a thing um, after I was looking around, and I, I want, the first thing I tried was using, uh, which might be a good solution in, most of the time, is Testacular, uh, which is a... And there's a couple other things out there, but Testacular is um, something that... Uh, it's basically a big like testing server that will take your code and execute it inside of uh, a bunch of different browsers or devices or things like that. I think it was developed by the Angular JS people. Uh, let me look this up so I've got the right link to it. Um, it's I think it's based on Node, but um, I wonder, hey, I think they might have changed the name to it. Karma. Now they're calling it a karma runner. Uh, literally, I just loaded up the page a couple days ago. Uh, so, yeah, because probably it sounds like testicular, that was probably sort of some one of those Haha, funny jokes that um, you get in trouble with at a conference. And uh, anyway, so karma is apparently a new name uh, because it forwarded me over there. And uh, anyway, um, I'll call it karma now. That looked pretty useful, but I had a lot of trouble getting it set up. And part of it might be because in our application we're using RequireJS 1, and it's kind of all the examples I was seeing, it was using RequireJS 2, and just I couldn't get it working. I, for some reason it just didn't work, and I spent several hours one day trying to make it work, and I eventually just gave up and said, this is not going to happen. But I found something that uh, did work for me, uh, and specifically working with Mocha and the setup I have, which is called... Um, uh, Mocha J, oh, or excuse me, Mocha Phantom JS, which is basically, um, if you haven't heard of Phantom JS, it's basically a headless webkit that you can run from the command line. Um, pretty cool, uh, thing there. Uh, and you, uh, it basically, it run, it'll take, um, uh, Mocha tests and run them through Phantom and then spit out um, the output in a bunch of different reporters. Um, and the reporters thing is, 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 I mean, being able to do it for the command line is really the big thing that I needed for being able to do continuous integration stuff. So you can spit stuff out in, in tap format or X unit, which is really the ones that we need, and there's other stuff. So, so I can run this stuff from the CLI now, and uh, for the most part, it executes perfectly. There are a couple places where I ran into some weirdness, where for some reason it would run okay inside of Chrome if I just used the the Mocha browser runner that it comes with, that Mocha comes with, but for some reason it wasn't executing inside of Phantom. But I was able to fix that by making like a tiny little change in my code, and I can't, now I can't remember what it was. So it works fine. Um, so that's worked out pretty well for us, and uh, we haven't gotten into the CI system yet, but I think it'll work okay. And uh, I think the thing that I'm reminded of probably from this whole deal is that it really would have been a better idea to write these tests ahead of time. Um, I talked about some of that, I think I've talked about before, where it's it's hard to um, write tests against UI code when the UI is changing a lot, and I think that's still the case. I think that's a, particularly the case with stuff like 
um, where this is a backbone application, and you end up writing a ton of code in backbone to um, uh, a lot of like boilerplate code to like re-render things when stuff changes and stuff like that because um, backbone doesn't have that idea of sort of like binding directly to the HTML. And so, like, if somebody interacts with the HTML, it automatically changes things, um, stuff like that, it, it, which I guess is stuff like Angular is supposed to address. Um, and so it might be harder in a system like that because um, uh, you you end up having lots of stuff that, uh, you know, you end up writing lots of different code and having to modify how your code behaves to change UI behaviors. Um, I think, though... It would have been safe to write tests right out of the box for like all my data handling stuff, and that probably would have been a much better idea than what I'm doing now, which is catching up with that. Um, so, you know, one of the things though, I think I thought that was kind of interesting was I ended up um, I, I made a, a gist out of this. I say gist. Somebody that came up today. Where gist. Yeah, I say gist. Um, You're a fucking moron because it's exactly. Gist. Yep. Uh, so. It came up where I, like, the thing that starts off our application uh, was originally just a big blob of code, like, inside a function. It was just doing the kickstarting, and, of course, it started off small, and then it built up and built up and built up as we have this global app object that attaches things to it and things like that. And it was just, it, it became a series of, like, 25 different statements that, um, and it was pretty much all untestable. And part of the reason why it was all untestable is because I couldn't just test little pieces of it. If I executed that code in any way, it executed all the way and started up the whole application, and I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to be able to test pieces of it. So I wrote up a, a, a gist or gist for the rest of you. Um that basically took that, that showed how I took that code and broke that apart into methods and broke out like where it actually starts the application into a separate piece. So I can, that way I can load up that object and uh, write tests against its methods and just not start the application. I can just test the pieces that I need to with, and only, you know, do the bare minimum. So um, that worked like pretty well so far. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I wonder happy. if, especially with um, with more client side um, frameworks being becoming more popular in JavaScript, if maybe that the ultimate testing strategy is not so much the unit stuff, but the behavioral stuff, because you just kind of want to make sure that all the moving pieces are um, working correctly. Well, I think there's something to that. Like, I think I it's hard to do. I mean, there's some unit testing, like, if you're building an application and you are, like, when somebody does this step, it does a few things. Some of that is just, like, uh, like changing the program state and, and loading up different data. But some of that is going to be, well, I'm changing the UI around and I'm applying, like, CSS classes to, you know, DOM elements and stuff like that. Well, that kind of stuff it sort of necessitates that you have to execute inside a browser thing. And, and how are you going to test if that happened? Well, I mean, naturally, the thing you test for is like, well, is this class applied to it? And that's really not that far away from, you know, so you, so you just look at the DOM element, inspect it and say, oh, okay, does it have this class? This, you know, and this, in, in my case, I'm just using jQuery and then writing an assertion against that that says, okay, does that return to or false, right, if that class exists? Um, well, that's really not, 
very far away from the stuff you do in like uh uh in, in any like browser based you know round full testing things like in selenium uh where you're automating stuff happening um so it's not that i mean they're pretty tightly you know locked to each other um it's 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 just there's you know if you're if you're UI is in a browser. That's and you, you want to test your UI. It's that's it's hard to separate like the programmatic stuff. Uh, I think from uh, from the from the UI stuff. I think and and to how I'm not sure you can't really separate those very well. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so if you you're not you know I could you could do it on some level where you're like, well, I'm triggering this function as opposed to telling it, okay, tap this button and then you should, this should appear on the screen and you can programmatically test for that. So it's a little different, but some of my tests end up being sort of like halfway, uh, unit tests and halfway, um, you know, behavior tests. Right. Um, so that's the way it's kind of played out so far. And I guess I'll, I'll probably learn more as I keep going on this, but, uh, I think it's definitely the case that if you're writing applications as opposed to just, um, say, you know, code libraries and APIs and stuff like that, um, it's really hard. It's, it's hard to separate that. And because the, the UI is so, such a big part of it, you end up writing stuff that's really end to end tests, right? Know what I mean? Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, yes, it's it's funny just how so many of these patterns are applicable from language to language. People think their languages are so different. <sighs> good times, right. good times. All right, on to the next topic. So we wanted to talk a bit about uh, my book, because I know everyone loves to hear me talk about myself endlessly, both on Twitter and on this show. So yes, my latest uh, book came out on the 4th of March, The Grumpy Grumpy Programmer's PHP Unit Cookbook. And um, I've almost made as much in sales in the first, I guess, what day is it today? The 20th? No, 20, yeah, it's the 20th today? Yeah. So in the first 16 days, I've made almost as much as I made in direct book sales for my other book. And that took a year. So the whole 30, That's by, crazy. The whole 30 by 500 thing that Amy, my friend Amy, advocates, um, it works. Yeah. It really does work. And so... Um, Part of it, too, what we wanted to talk about is I've been invited uh, on the 7th of April. I will be doing this kind of launch, mini launch roundtable thing for three hours on a Sunday where Amy has sold tickets to people who are in the course and to also to the general public to just come online. It's like, like a Google Hangout type of thing. And we're going to talk about um, myself, um, Brandon Savage, who was in the, who joined the 30 by 500 course the same time I did. And Brendan, Brennan, Brent, sorry, Brennan Dunn, um, who is a freelancer who, uh, created a platform as a service app, no software as a service app for his clients. Uh, and it's just blossomed into his experiences with that have blossomed into a whole little info product of info product empire of, of his own. So, um, we're going to kind of talk about our experiences with like kind of how we launched it, our strategies, what we what we thought we did right, what we thought um, we did wrong, and just kind of answer questions from um, from people who are going to be there online. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. And like I said, I'm also getting paid for it, which is kind of nice as well. So um, I guess I'm starting to move into that circle of people that actually get paid to talk beyond just like having your flight and a hotel paid for. 
That's pretty fancy. You're a special guy now. Well, you know, I put a lot of effort into uh, into the book and stuff, and it's just, it's like, sorry for the squeaky. I got to move my chair. Um, it, it's a nice combination of like validation and like you know, I I just have found something, another little niche, another little groove for me to occupy. Um, that's providing some benefits beyond just um, stroking my ego to massive levels. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool, um, and I think I, maybe it shows that you can do something that is that people like, and you can still be sort of a likable person. And if you find the right thing, I guess like like you've told me about how you need to find some sort of pain point and present a solution to that. And uh, you know, I guess you've 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 been able to find that and and talk about it in the right way, but without hopefully being like. Uh, I, at least I don't think so. Uh, pushy or sort of like super markety about it or anything like that, right? Yeah, it's a fine line. It's kind of hard to. You have to kind of sit there and, and judge um, the effectiveness of your of your message with the people you're trying to attract. Because you kind of like you're right. You kind of do this research. You 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 think of an area type of people that you want to sell something to and then you start doing research to figure out what are the things they're complaining about all the time and then to figure out if there's something you can actually offer them that will solve their problem for them because um, one of the things Amy talks about uh, that I'm sure all programmers who have aspirations beyond just being a code monkey um, think about is they all everybody has awesome ideas um, but the problem is so many people just have the idea and 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 they don't know whether anyone else will even care about the thing that they're doing. Like you see it all the time in the course where people come into this, they have an idea of this thing they want to do. And then um, they propose it. And then when people start telling them, asking them questions about, well, who, who do you think this is aimed for? And you know, what problem is this really solving? Is, is this something you want to do? Or is it something that you, uh, you know, are other people going to even want it? Because I, I know I've had tons of ideas that I thought were good, but in the in the harsh light of day, are just they're useless, and no one's ever going to really pay you any money for it. So it's not even worth um, pursuing. Idea quicksand, I mean, is what Amy calls it. So it's um, it's very interesting to go through the to to add something that most developers are very uncomfortable with, which is marketing, marketing themselves and their ideas, adding that into your repertoire and making it a making it a tool for success just like picking your favorite frameworks and in your favorite language to accomplish certain tasks it's been um this last year starting well i guess almost 14 months now starting with the the first book i did through lean pub which was the the building you know the php one refactoring your code to be more testable that book um it's been a very eye-opening experience teaching me another side of the business of of being a developer that a lot of people um a lot of people should be aware of because you can learn how to do it it definitely uh, i think it is a learned skill it's not one of these things either you you have the ability to market yourself or you don't i think it's really it's it's learned you you can teach yourself how to do these things oh i would yeah i mean i imagine so it's it's not like it's impossible um i think it's easier for some people Right, <laughs> you know, oh, it, I, you I know, think for some, sure. Yeah, I think some people definitely um, like they have some natural tendencies to make it, you know, towards being comfortable talking about themselves and writing things. But m- most of the people that I know that have done these sort of things, it's all very uh, much um, they've learned how to get so much better at it. So, right on. Now, hey, one thing I was I was curious about. It seems like it's worked for you, but like the. 
I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you took a different, a pretty different pricing approach, like on this book. And I was, I guess I was wondering first off, um, if you could talk about like what motivated you to, to try that different approach, like in terms of, I guess the, whatever your pricing scale is and, uh, have you caught any like flack about that for the most part? I mean, it seems like people think that it's valuable enough to pay for. So, right. Yeah. Um, I felt after talking to some other people who are in the 30 by 500 course who have, um, done similar things, you know, niche technical books. Um, after seeing what they were charging and more importantly, the type of revenue they were bringing in, it made me realize that for my first book, um, I probably underpriced it. And, um, just as an experiment, I decided to raise the minimum of, from my first book from 10. I just said, screw it. I'm going to make it 20 and there's going to be one price. It's going to be 20 bucks. Um, instead of how, cause lean pub lets you set a minimum and a suggested, I just went and said, okay, I'm going to make the minimum and the suggested the same. And um, in terms of monthly revenue, it really hasn't changed. I'm still pretty much making from that first book, making the same amount of money, um, but on fewer units. So um, in that case, I'm thinking I probably found the right price point. So I decided to be a lot more aggressive. And, I, and um, one of the things I'm going to talk about during that roundtable, too, is, is the idea that I really feel that one of the things you should be doing is setting the price for something to a point where you where you yourself are slightly uncomfortable with it, as in, man, I'm not 100% sure that's right. And so I thought, I'll set that at a number that makes me feel slightly uncomfortable, but, but uncomfortable, but confident that many people will see value. Um, of the 300 and something, I think it's up to 350 units now I've sold, I've had one refund. So, um, and... And I think that one refund is because I told the person, I'm not offended if you didn't like the book. The refund is there for a reason. If you're not happy, you can get your money back. It's no big deal. Um, sure. And that person took me up on it because he was kind of disappointed by the book. And I had a brief email conversation with the person saying, well, it sounds like you are not the target. You're not the target person for this book. So um, I'm sorry that I wasn't and um, feel totally free to take up, uh, take me up on the refund. Um Oh, so someone asked about uncomfortable as an uncomfortably high. Uh, yes, you can also do it too low. The, the, the danger when you set it too low is that you're kind of devaluing your work. Um, and, and by definition, you start devaluing other people's work because people will, people will look at another tech book and say, well, book X is a certain price and you've, you've priced your book differently. Why is yours different? I've just priced my book as, I've created a very niche book full of really useful um, uh, solutions to a specific problem, and this is the price I'm charging. And if you don't want to pay that price, well, okay, then don't buy my book. But as like I said, I've made almost, I've made, I have just over eight grand in um, royalties waiting for me to be cashed in sometime in April when the publisher pays out. So, um, and that means at least 300 and I've given away, I don't know, maybe eight or nine copies to various people. So let's call it 340. So I've had 340 people who have been extremely happy um, to pay the price that I want them to pay. Well, that seems pretty reasonable to me. I mean, yeah, particularly, I think there's some topics that just don't get covered in a lot of detail. And if, you know, I guess you have to think about how much, you know, value is it there in your time and, uh, you know, would it be worth it for me to spend, you say, I don't know, 40 bucks, 50 bucks to, to be able to have access to 
some really good material, or, you know, I could spend a bunch of time probably trying to figure it out on my own, but, uh, you know, that that's, that's useful. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I don't feel so, I don't think you should necessarily, and you, I, I don't think that you do, but you shouldn't feel bad about, you know, charging a, a, a higher fee for it because I, I don't think you've ever, uh, say, turned down anybody who asked you a question or anything like that. No, right? I, don't, I, I, I never do that because there's, I mean, to, to be perfectly mercenary about it, there's no profit in turning people down when they ask you a question. I mean, nobody's ever, I haven't had anybody ask me to do something that strays into the realm of you're asking me to do unpaid consulting work for you because I don't do that. So, um almost every question I get is very reasonable um, and people are asking me stuff and I'm more than happy to answer questions. I tell people all the time, um, contrary to what people might think I'm like, that I'm actually a very reasonable person to talk to and there are no stupid questions, only stupid answers. So um, like you said, I get lots of questions on Twitter and via, and a lot more via email these days, people asking me advice on how to do things. And I am more than happy to answer those questions because chances are those people are either already customers of mine, which makes me happy, or by me answering their questions, it makes them far more likely to convert into uh, a customer. And it just gives you a good feeling. Well, you know, every once in a while, I need to tamp down on the grumpiness. Although I have to say, because we can segue a little bit before we talk about the next thing, is that I've started watching House. Um, I had never watched any episodes of House. Now, now uh, Tuesday nights are around here are now date night for me and the wife to sit down and watch House. Um, so I realized, in terms of like really caustic commentary, I really need to step up my game. You um, need to do a better job. Um, yeah. House is just shaming me. I know I used to troll a lot more on Twitter about testing stuff. <laughs> um, I, I used to troll a lot more. I don't troll as much, but damn it, I watch House and I think, man, those are, that's some awesome dialogue the writers on that show were doing. And I know that uh, people have said to me that. Uh, House's personality appears to be um, the anti-Chris in terms of he's a total cowboy and just runs around uh, mucking around with production and screwing around with stuff. But in many ways, the the quality that House has that I would like to think that I share is um, is just the whole deal about uh, about how. He eliminates everything. In many ways, he's kind of trying to do, they're trying to do black box testing. What are all the symptoms? Let's look at all the bugs that we're getting and try to figure out what the source of these things are based on the behavior. In many right. ways, House is doing behavioral driven medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Snap. It all comes back. It all right. comes back. Certainly. No, actually that ding noise was, uh, yeah, I'm using a uh, texture. I'm just going to turn the volume down so nobody has to hear that. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, come on. Sorry, bro. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so, so to finish up the book stuff. Yeah. I mean, like someone asked, uh, I guess W. Golden was asking, writing a book seems daunting. Yes, it is daunting. It is a lot of work. I, uh, but this book was a little bit easier because I already kind of knew the material. So it's just a more case I had to do research to fill in the gaps about stuff that I didn't know. So I would estimate I spent probably 70 to 80 hours writing the book. Um, I got tech editors to take a look at it. I probably spent another 10 hours re-editing the book based on tech edit changes. Plus I had an actual editor for spelling and grammar. So about another 10 hours. So I'd say maybe high end. I spent 90 hours working on the book. Um, so that would be uh, like what? Two and a half full weeks of working of doing nothing but writing the book. 
but I did it just in fits and spurts here and there. So, um, yeah, so 90 hours worth of work and $8,000 in return. Plus there's a licensing deal for my book coming up as well with an online tutorial place. Um, I'll announce that once that's all finalized, but, um, yes, it's a good chunk of change for writing a niche book and, um, it's all about stacking the bricks. We start off with a few books and then I did my course. I have those videos. I've sold six of those packages at a hundred bucks a pop for three videos. And that just means now I know people want to see videos from me. So now I can start doing other videos and charging various price points to figure stuff out. So the sky is the limit for the grumpy programmers info product empire. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, you know, it's, 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 I was glad to hear that you were doing well with it because so, you know, I've had some experience uh, writing uh, tech stuff, although never a whole book, I guess. And my experience is that it takes a really long time and that um, if you go through normal publishing uh, methods, there's very little money in it. Um, like I figured out that I probably was making like well less than minimum wage. Uh, if I f- figured, okay, I got this amount of money and I had put this amount of like these, this number of hours of work into it. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit thankless. Uh, but I, you know, I think that self publishing works for some people. Um, I think you, but you have to, uh, really think a lot about how you market yourself. Right? Oh yeah. If you're going to self publish, you have to be totally willing to do all the marketing yourself, which, which I am. So for me, it's, uh, I think if I were, I think that if I were doing this, um, via a, um, via regular publisher, um, I think I would be feeling like I'm not getting the push from the publisher that I was expecting. Um, I just found it so, I, I just, I wasn't willing to relinquish the control um, that I got out of self-publishing. I know that Mr. Sunquist asked about um, why didn't I go through O'Reilly. Um, I've heard enough story. I've made more money off of my book than some big name authors have made out of O'Reilly books that have sold way more copies. So why would I... I've made more money with less effort. So why would I give up that ratio? I mean, that's what people said to me. Like, I know people have sold 10 times, 100 times the copies of my books, and they haven't made anywhere near what I made off of my books. So why would I give up that money? I'm on Twitter all the time talking about all sorts of crazy shit all the time. It's not hard to stick a few tweets in there once in a while about the book, write a few blog posts, set up a website to sell the book, write good, solid marketing um, material, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at what Adam talked about here about, they did this book, Beautiful Testing, which is a whole bunch of people contributing stories related to doing testing of applications. And people have this idea that because a name publisher is involved, that you're going to get, make mad money about it. You're not, I've, I'm going to make more money than a lot of tech authors off of a really popular book. I only know of one person who's gone from lean pub to a regular publisher. This guy, I think his name... Trevor Burnham, I think is his name. He's a JavaScript guy. He did a book called Eloquent JavaScript. No, not Eloquent JavaScript. He did a different book about JavaScript stuff. He did it through LeanPub. Um, and then the pragmatic programmers got interested in it. So, so he was able to negotiate a really good royalty rate, way better than what the pragmatic programmers normally offer because he had the proven success of the book. And now it's published as, uh, now it's published through the pragmatic programmers and everyone who bought it on LeanPub got a free copy of the PragProg version. So that's pretty sweet. So, um, so I mean, there's no way 
at this point, I would consider going through a regular publisher. If I'd done it once, if I'd just done the first book and it wasn't so good, I'd be like, okay, maybe I'll do it next time. But I was convinced that, um, that there was an approach to it that I was doing wrong. Um, I think it's the async JavaScript book that 15.3 talked about. I think that's the one. If I'd done it once and like, okay, I can't do all the marketing stuff. I'll go through a regular publisher and take my chances. But I just felt, I really felt that I know I can do this better. And I knew that Amy could help me do it better. So that's all I need. I mean, I had to spend money to join Amy's course. So I guess you could lop off the fee that I paid to be in the course off of the royalties for this book. I'm still way ahead. So um, I'm all cool in the gang with the, with the choice to do it myself. I mean, I don't know if I'll do another book because there's videos and other, and courses seem to me to be a way to make even more money with um, less effort. So um, videos might be the way to go, especially now that I can actually fucking edit these things properly. I don't have to do a video seven times over like I had to do for the second one of my, um, from my boot camp sessions. God, what a clusterfuck that was. Did you get that figured out? I did. And they all look pretty slick now. I'm very, ha- I'm very happy with how those videos, um, turned out. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, man. All right. That's so the last great. thing we're going to talk about, cause we're, we're 45 minutes in here. Uh, okay. let's talk about Lone Star PHP. The 2013 edition. Yeah. So uh, I yeah. so I went last year to the 2012. Um, I gave two talks. I did my usual building testable apps talks. And then I did one kind of about um, – I did a talk that I hadn't given before, which is kind of about building good developer workflows and things that you can do to make things better. Um, it worked out pretty well. I had an awesome time. Um, at Lone Star. The uh, PHP Mafia down there in Dallas um, treated me uh, very well. And uh, so, unfortunately, I made a – well, not unfortunately. I decided that I wasn't going to do any other conferences over the summer um, to stick around the house because uh, I travel so much for work. Um, I thought it would be nice to stick around for the summer. So I wasn't – so I didn't submit. But you're going to Lone Star. I am. Yes, I am. Uh, I submitted a couple talks to it, and I got one selected. And so I am going to be speaking there. And so that's exciting. This will be the first time I wasn't there. Is this the second year they've done it? Or the um, third. Year? Third year. So I haven't been to any of them, which is pretty lame of me. Um, I, uh, so yeah, I've, I am going to be speaking. I'm going to do my, my, well, it was, a, it was a micro PHP talk before, and now it's called more code, more problems. So I'm going to give that talk. Are you going to, are you going to put pictures of wrappers? It sounds like it's a perfect with mo, more code, more problems. It sounds like it's perfect to have a bunch of pictures of wrappers in. Just, um, in yeah, in it's all going to be. There's just going to be pictures of Mace <laughs> from everything. Mace and um, Biggie. Yeah, just Mace and Biggie. Um, and and uh, so it looks like a good lineup too. Like, um, actually, I have a couple girls, which is weird. Um, but uh, you know things like that. I think they've. Uh, it looks like a, it'll be good stuff, and I've heard that they have good food, and uh, I'm excited about going. Oh yeah, it was uh, awesome barbecue. Yeah, right. So I think that'll be really cool. Um, it's a two day thing. It's going to come just a few days after Open Source Bridge, which is uh, a little. I think last year the reason I didn't go is because they were on this. Well, no, I think I. Last year, I was like, I can't go anywhere. I think I canceled everything. But the year before that, I didn't go because they were happening on the, like the same week. Um, now they are a week apart. 
and uh, I'm going to try to do both of those uh, and see what happens. <laughs> so that should be fun. Um, but yeah, and I, so I'm gonna gonna do that that talk about um, you know sort of uh, microcode, and then how, uh, and then I'm I'm hoping that they have some opportunity to do some sort of open talk. Uh, times on the schedule or unconference or whatever you want to call that, um, because I'd like to be able to give my um, open sourcing mental illness uh, talk. Um, I have proposed that at some places, and I've gotten good feedback, but I don't think I've I've gotten any place that publicly uh, I can say that I'm going to speak about it. But I'm still waiting. Like I'm still waiting to hear from Open Source Bridge and. Uh, I think OzCon is going to come out. Those things are going to come out sometime after April 1st, I was told, and things like that. So we'll see what happens. Um, it'll be particularly interesting because uh, I think we might be in a new house by that time, uh, and figuring all that stuff out will be crazy. But yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what's going on. Um, so you went last year, is that correct? Yeah, pay attention to me, Chris. I am paying attention, dude. Did you go last year? Yeah, I did. I spoke. Okay. I gave two talks. I see. I think maybe you talked and you were muted, so I oh maybe was very upset about it. So yeah, you gave two talks, and um, you were, but you were like kind of paring back on your travel this year, if I recall. Yeah, just because, like I said, I've been traveling too much for work. Like every six weeks, I got to go down to Buffalo for a week. So um, I thought I would stick home, stick around for the summer. That's cool. You know what's interesting is I'm looking through the speaker list, and I have by far the longest bio. My bio is like three paragraphs. No one else's. Well, actually, Travis has a three paragraph one, but his is still shorter. Um, I just cannot shut up about myself. I guess is what, <laughs> what we're getting out of that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I uh, I think it'll be fun. So I'm excited about that, and uh, I've heard just heard really good things about this conference. So I'm excited about being able to go, and I'm excited about seeing the guys from uh, from the Dallas area who uh, I've I've missed um, at conferences for a while, and uh, yeah, so that's really good. And you know, I guess you know I mentioned Lodestar, and that that was coming up, but I I think the newest the first thing is gonna we're gonna have that I think we're both gonna be at is Tech. Correct. Um, so yeah, we're gonna be there and. I'm not going to be there for the whole time, but I'm going to come up for like a day or so and uh, try to do some things. And uh, we're going to try to do a show, I think a live show, right? Yes, we're going to do basically what we did last year. We'll just, I think during the, um, after one of the sessions, like after all the main sessions are over and as long as it's not conflicting with some other event um, that they've set up. Um, yeah, we're going to get together, grab one of the rooms and, uh, do like we did last year. Just sit up front with a microphone and a laptop and talk stuff and we'll solicit questions from the audience. And I know we had an awesome time. I punched you repeatedly in the arm and yeah, uh, that hurt It was that yeah, hurt a lot. I know I'm, I'll punch the other arm to make Thanks. up for it. Um, so it should be a good time and I'm giving two talks. I'm doing a new one. Um, like I'm doing my usual building testable apps talk, but I'm doing one on using BHAT for user acceptance testing. So I'll go into how to set that up and kind of explain how the whole whole thing works. So I'm, that does sound interesting because I don't know what the hell that thing does. What BHAT does? Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know what that is. Uh, well, you've been, I guess, what you've been doing with anything you've been doing with behavioral stuff with JavaScript, it's incredibly similar. 
Similar. Similar. Okay. Yeah, similar. It's Very my, good. It's, it's my Canadian accent showing through. I'm sorry. Yeah, there you go. Right. Sorry, eh? Hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a picture of you um talking to Joel on the front page of the uh Lone Star PHP website. Cool. That's pretty exciting. And then there's a picture of what's this guy's name? I can't remember. God damn it. He's actually a good friend of mine. I do you have this problem? Where you see someone and you're like, <laughs> I know who that is, and you cannot remember what their name yeah, is. Yeah, that happens to me sometimes, too. Um, it'll happen to me, people I've known for years, like, or I see, like, every day at work. Or, well, yeah, no, I guess even that. But, like, I, when I worked at the university, there would be people I'm like, I cannot remember this person's name. Literally, they're they're in the same office. I worked there for nine years. What is wrong with me? Dude, there's nothing wrong with you. All right. Well, that makes me feel better. Nothing wrong. Right. Yeah, nothing wrong with you. I'm willing to talk about on the air anyway. Yeah, we should probably. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about, Ed? Because otherwise, I think we've made it to the end. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, I'm trying to see if the uh, IRC groups got anything to tell us. No, nothing. No, we're just busy talking about how we how I can get a, a free T-shirt from work for doing multiple talks. We do this Dev Talks thing, every, Dev Tricks every two weeks. Yeah. Uh, we spend a lunch hour. Um, people give short little presentations about various uh, about various topics. I did uh, I did a talk about the process of writing writing the book, um, which mm-hmm. was kind of interesting. And I did the whole underpants uh, gnome thing of you know have a book. All this hand wavy stuff in the minute, and you end up with profit at the end of it. So, yeah, um, right. I kind of talked about that. So, uh, so anyway, I think we reached to the end. This has been episode number thirty-three zero. Um, we're at the eight, we're getting up there in age. Episode thirty of the Development Hell Podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. We want to thank our awesome sponsor from Wonder Network. Thank you, Paul, for donating bandwidth so that the people in IRC can um, follow along with us and hear what we're saying. Um, you can, you can, uh, we're, we're on iTunes. Please, 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 please go and rate us on iTunes. It helps us understand if we're doing things that people like. Um, positive reviews are good. Negative reviews are fine. We can always ignore the negative ones. Um, if you also go to our website, devhell.info, you can find the archives there. Every single episode we have ever done is up there. You can listen to all the episodes on the website. There are show notes for every single episode. So you can find, uh, find links to all the things that we uh, talk about. And you can find us on Twitter, dev underscore hell is the Twitter account. You can find me, Chris Harches. I'm Grumpy Programmer without the U. You can find Ed, uh, Funkatron with the U. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, everybody in IRC. And uh, we'll see you all very soon. Good night.